0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, The Radio Episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books, With Open Arms, Short Stories of Misadventures in Morocco, and The New Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The Radio Episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including Travel Humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travel's companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travel's The Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. For over 30 years, Bill Zarchi was a freelance director of photography, a writer, and a teacher based in San Francisco. He has shot film, video, and HDTV projects in 30 countries and 40 states. He filmed interviews with three former presidents for the Emmy Award-winning West Wing documentary special. Some of Bill's other credits include the Grammy-winning Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, and the feature films Conceiving Ada and Read You Like a Book. His Tales from the Road, technical articles, and personal essays have appeared in Chicken Soup for the Soul and Traveler's Tales anthologies, the San Francisco Chronicle, and American Cinematographer, Emmy, and Kyoto Journal magazines. Bill has an MA in film from Stanford, and he taught advanced cinematography and lighting at San Francisco State University for many years, as well as lighting courses and workshops at UC Berkeley and the Art Institute of California. Welcome, Bill.
1: Thank you, Matthew. Happy to be here.
0: Glad to have you. So uh, let's just jump right into it. I am curious about cinematography, um, and you know, I hear so many roles mentioned when talking about films, and a lot of the times there are terms. I know there's a thing called a gaffer, and there are other things I hear that I have no idea what they are. They just kind of come up. So can you tell us specifically, just to start this off, what is the role of the cinematographer at a high level?
1: On on the um, on the basic level to start with, what I, what I the impression I had after going to film school at Stanford was that I needed to, I was in charge of placing the camera and operating the camera. And what I discovered very early in my career was that a lot of the role also encompassed setting the look for the film. And that's something that's done, done with lighting uh, and, um, um, angles and all the, all those kinds of things. But with lighting, meaning the actual lights that you set, uh, to hit the people in the backgrounds and also, um, Uh, in 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 often giving giving a film a a look like making it all kind of blue or something that's very popular with dystopian films now dystopian films themselves are very popular right now Mm -hmm. but they often have a kind of greenish blue edge to them which creates an emotional value that even people who don't necessarily notice the color pick up on that that emotional stuff right right Uh, so so i had to um when i started out i was concentrating on operating the camera and i learned a little bit about lighting from a fellow i worked with right at the beginning about where to place the light so that it wouldn't shadow people people's eyes but once i started working with professional gaffers you mentioned that term a gaffer gaffer is the chief lighting technician oh that's what a gaffer
0: is and uh
1: once i started working with professional gaffers who had really clear ideas and would say to me okay bill if the person's sitting here where's the light coming from and i'd say from the lights They'd go no dim bulb uh, is there a window nearby? Is the light coming from a window? Are we replicating the light of a window? You know, And, and, and they would always want to play the light from natural sources. And that was a tremendously important lesson to me. Mm-hmm. And something I learned from other crew people early on.
0: Right. So we're going to talk more about lighting because I know that's such a key thing. And yeah. as you can tell in this studio here today... I've really spent a lot of time thinking about You'd, the lighting. You do great lighting yeah, for the, radio. Yeah, my Matthew. videos. Yeah, exactly. Lighting for video is a whole different
1: art. This is lighting for radio.
0: Or, or, Sorry, <laughs> that's what I meant. For radio, yes. Lighting for radio is completely right. different art. And I, right. think a lot of, I think it's an underappreciated art, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Absolutely. And I know you probably don't have a lot of experience in that. So we'll talk about that later off, off uh, not off camera, off, off radio. But uh, you got an undergrad degree in government. Yeah. So how did you
1: end up going to film school? Um, I got an undergraduate degree in government because I thought I was gonna go to law school and go work in Washington and help save the world Uh Uh, Very quickly it became obvious to me that the first step would be that I would be drafted into and sent to Vietnam So I stalled for a couple of years teaching high school in northern New England where I went to school Um, and by the time the two years were up. I had flunked two draft physicals. There was a lottery uh, based on day, date of birth, and I was number 361 out of 365. And I felt pretty safe. So I, was, I ran into an old friend and who, was, who was about to go to Vietnam, and I said, what are you going to do when you get back, knowing full well he'd be killed over there? Yep. And he said, oh, I'm going to go to film school. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't know. I guess you learn about making movies. I thought that was pretty cool. I applied to a bunch of film schools. I got into one at Stanford. Not a bad one to get into. Not a bad one to get into at all. It was a wonderful experience. My friend did not get killed, came back, moved into uh, our apartment, and slept on the couch for three years and... Was that Rest. annoying to
0: have him there for three years? No, it was
1: great. Okay. It was great. On he's, your couch, though. He split the rent and didn't want his own bedroom. It was great. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. All right. As yeah. long as he's uh, going to bed after you and waking up before you and not taking up too much couch space, I guess that works.
1: He's now a feature film editor and lives a few blocks from me in the East Bay. Here, oh, yeah? And we're, we're still friends 50 years later. So. All right. Does he
0: ever crash on your couch? Or never, does, it sounds like he doesn't never. need to do that anymore. I don't even
1: let him know I have a couch. Okay. All right. Good.
0: So after film school, what was your first gig that launched your career? Oh, dear. Not uh, to put you
1: on the spot. <laughs> the, the very first thing I did was if you can recall. shooting something on Bart cars with a wind-up camera. And I hired a friend to be the camera assistant. The camera assistant, you asked about roles. camera yeah. assistant is in charge of the, the care and feeding of the camera. Loading, loading the film, unloading the film, keeping it nice and clean. And she had very long hair, which was not uh, not gathered in any way. And her hair went into the body of the camera as she was loading the film. And Uh one of the things you have to stay away from is, is getting a hair on the film because in, in that tiny 16 millimeter film, when it's blown up to wall size, it looks like a huge rope there. And that's in your book. There's a little story about that in your book. And my, yes, about a hair in the gate. And my client was very unimpressed. I think that was my very first gig ever. Yeah. Okay. So it started on Bart. I wouldn't say it launched my career. Yeah. But,
0: it, it, <laughs> <laughs>
1: it started, but it started
0: on BART, which I believe is how you got Bart. here today. I, exactly.
1: Wow, it the just same all comes car. full circle, does it? The same
0: car. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I think they've got a little plaque up there, right? Right. Here started Bill's Archie's cinematography career. With a hair, yeah. hair in the gate. With mm-hmm. a hair in the gate, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit more of, uh, not more, I guess we really haven't talked much about it at all, but the, the process leading up to a shoot. Mm-hmm. Because I am kind of curious again about sort of the, not super technical, but some of the behind the scenes, what mm-hmm. goes on and what goes into a shoot. And that's a lot of what your stories focus on is is what goes into that. And when I say his stories, did I mention his book, Showdown at Shinagawa? No. I don't think I said that in the intro, no. did I? What
1: was the title? Showdown at Shinagawa. And there's a subtitle too. Oh, I missed the subtitle. Of filming from Bombay to Brazil. That's right, and I actually like that t- subtitle because it's explanatory. I
0: can't believe I didn't put that in the. Um, I was so proud. I'm usually pretty. Um, it's in the PR. Conscientious. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Showdown at Shinagawa. Because, honest to God, you know what I did do though? I made sure. Seriously. That as we're going through, and you'll see that I mentioned your book title multiple times, so it would be in people's heads. That's great. So see, I am thinking in those terms, but I left it out at potentially the most important moment.
1: And to the audience out there, I just want you to know, Matthew actually read my book. I did read the book. I'm so impressed.
0: I'm about to prove that multiple times. All right, so Showdown at Shinagawa. Something from Bombay to... What was this? Uh, Tales of Filming. Tales of Filming from Bombay to to Brazil. Brazil. All right. So we got that out there. We're going to repeat that over and over and over (laughs) again until you're all buying the book. Hopefully even before the podcast is over, before the radio show is over. But let's let's start from the beginning of a shoot. And something, a quote that I liked, because this is kind of how I operate, both when I was doing corporate stuff and now when I'm doing this radio show, quote, when I was... In film school at Stanford, our teachers pushed the idea that pre-production planning was the key to making shoots work. You've got to have a plan, a shot list, a logical order and schedule, a list of what you're hoping to accomplish and when, and the wisdom to accept that plans often change during production. So planning ahead a big deal.
1: Planning ahead is a big deal. You really need to know where you're going to shoot. You need to go visit the location ahead of time. You need to have... A have a a plan as to what exactly what equipment you're going to use there isn't just a generic camera there there are the the professional cameras come in pieces camera body lenses are separate viewfinders are separate uh support gear such as tripods or dollies or cranes are all all separate everything is a la carte same thing goes for lighting you wouldn't if we were filming this interview here i would light it one particular way almost exactly the way you've lit it today. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, with with
0: if, fluorescent lighting from the... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You've done a hell of a job. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, if we were filming, you know, a dramatic scene in a bar, I would light it completely differently and, and i need to see the bar ahead of time and know what you know get a feeling for what's the mood we're creating and, and that's something I need to know from the director is it going to be dark and moody is it going to be bright and cheery right um, and then see the bar and know you know where can we hang lights because you often can't light things from stands right, uh, right. if the camera needs to see a, a wide perspective you have to hide the light stands or hang the lights or some combination of the two right. right so it's really important to do that and that's something that I stressed a lot with my with my students when I was teaching right cinematography is the planning
0: so what about the last part of that quote though uh which i also really liked and the wisdom to accept that plans often change during production well so- it's
1: it, it's it's an it's an, an ad hoc business i mean somebody i used to work with a a lighting gaffer and who would um when the the producers would go up because the producers are, are in charge of of the money and you know money and time and they would say how long is it going to take to do this setup He'd say, oh, I don't know, forty-five, fifty minutes. And so They said, I need to know exactly. He said, I've never done exactly this setup before. It's, you know, this is, it's always different. Every day is different. Yep. Imagine going to the same office every day and doing the same job every day and working with the same p- people every day. This is completely the opposite of that. Working right. with different people, uh, uh, even the crews are are almost always freelance, and so, so they're they're ad hoc too. And and the the, the shooting process is set up and shooting process is a process of gathering people and resources and throwing them at the problem, but you have to have the right stuff there. Right. And you have to have, you have to go in knowing, knowing what you, what you expect to encounter and then deal with whatever actually happens, which won't be the same at all. I guarantee you. Right.
0: And so when, when you're having curveballs thrown your way, um, how are some of the, how do you kind of keep your cool during all that? Or is it, is it that you've just, once you have so much experience, you almost just sort of anticipate that's going to happen so it doesn't really phase you and you just do your best to deal with the circumstances? Is I would that...
1: say that's that's a lot of it. I mean, I certainly was more nervous about shoots when I first started out. And as the years went on and I realized that 99% of the time things went fine. Um, Bay Area crews tend to be friendly and highly educated compared to other, other markets and hardworking and... Um, that's not the case in other places around the country or around the world. Well, because when, a lot
0: of what you're doing is overseas. A
1: lot of, a lot of what I did was overseas, and especially in the later years. Um, but when people would come here to work, they'd be impressed by people's problem-solving ability. I mean, you, you know, film people are gypsies. They take all their stuff, they, they bring it somewhere, they set it up, they make it work, and then they break it down and move on. Yep. Uh, sometimes, sometimes one day you know one day per location sometimes five different locations in a day so things don't always go the way you think they're going to go and you have to be able to adapt right when i think back on all those years and all those days like that sometimes i think wow i'm glad i'm out not dealing with that kind of time pressure anymore Mm. but i also felt like i had the temperament feel like i had the temperament to deal with the time pressure pretty pretty easily. And
0: that seems like that would be a big part of it. You've got to have the right temperament. You've got to not get too upset when things don't go right. You've got to just be able to kind of keep moving forward and adapt as necessary.
1: Ideally, there are lots of people who do lose it and do scream. There are lots of screamers in the business. Right. I I always tried to work with producers who were very calm so that if things weren't going right and we needed something else or we just couldn't pull off the shop that day, they were the ones who had to deal with their higher ups or with the client or with the production company and figure that out. And mm-hmm. so, so my last resort is always blame the producer. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, whatever works. Yep.
0: So what about when you go overseas? That's a joke, yeah, that was, a, that was a joke. He didn't mean that. <laughs> uh, what about when you go overseas and you said you hire local lighting crews and gear when you shoot abroad? Yep. Um, so each time, I mean, presumably once in a while you're going back someplace where you work with someone, mm-hmm. but usually it sounds like it's people you haven't met there might be language issues, there might be cultural issues, there might be just even getting the equipment, I don't know if there are issues with that. Mm-hmm. So how much of a challenge was that each time? Because you've already got just the shoot itself and the, the nature of, of the technical side of things of just getting the footage is challenging enough. But then if you're adding to this, these other dimensions of I've never met you before, I don't know your work style, I might not know your language. So how did you deal with, with those sort of challenge, sorts of challenges when you were?
1: Uh- not a, It wasn't as difficult as you might think. Yeah. Um, I almost always traveled with a camera assistant and a camera package, so I knew that my end of things would work. We almost always hired lighting crew and people abroad. I almost always traveled with a producer um, who was experienced in overseas travel, uh, and, and I worked with some of the best of them, and they were extremely calm in dealing with just the, the exigencies of daily life and the, and the, the trauma the occasional trauma of dealing with production mm-hmm. and dealt with it in a very calm and measured way. Um, and, ha- and, and one of the benefits of, um, of, of traveling abroad frequently, I think I've done 10 or 11 filming trips to Japan, four or five to China, uh, probably a dozen or a couple of dozen to various places in Europe. And one of the advantages of that is that I, um, have have worked with some of the same people over and okay. over in other cultures we always 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 hire a fixer we hire a local producer who knows the cultural stuff who can deal with the language issues although sometimes we would also have a translator uh, but having someone Chinese in China or Japanese in Japan or even English in England um, or French in France is a huge advantage because you know we need we need a we need a widget well I know where to get that now, I could come in with the best producer in the world, but if he's from the Bay Area, he's not going to know where to get a widget in Paris. Right, right. Uh, you know, And he, he's going to have to make five calls to figure it out. If I have a French fixer, he, he knows exactly where to get it, and he probably has one in his car. Right, right. Uh, they also deal with the, trans- the transportation stuff because none of us really ever wanted to drive when we were abroad. Oh, I bet. Uh, you know, e- even on the, 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 in the countries that, where you drive on the right-hand side, I never wanted to drive because I had other things to, to think about. I, you know, We were rehashing what had just happened or planning what sure. was about to happen, and I didn't want to be thinking about directions, and I didn't want to be dealing with my travel mates uh, around the stress of getting places. So we'd get in the car, and the fixer or his driver or someone like that would whisk us away and show up at the next place. Then we could talk in the car. And and, and we did a lot of planning, a lot of planning in the car.
0: Yeah. So what about, so you've, you've just gone, let's say to Japan and you've got your team is assembled and you've got the equipment and everything that you need. Then the other main thing, it sounds like you do is scout the locations. Always. Yeah. And how much of that do you know beforehand versus, is that just, that's something you always have to do when you're on the ground or do you sometimes already know? I mean, if you're going to a factory, you know the factory, but then again, even, I guess, even if it's indoors, you might not know exactly where in the factory or what. You mean
1: if it's a factory I've already been to? Uh or, no or, or, no
0: so let's say it's a new whether it's outdoors or indoors it's a new place right. you're always sort of scouting that's always part of the always yeah. i mean okay. I,
1: it's something i'm always pushing for it it always means additional budget for the production because they have to pay people to do that the, um you know if they didn't have a lot of money they'd say hey let's just scout this without the gaffer without the lighting people right. and i'd say well um you know he's we need him for a half day to do this scout now compare that to an hour worth of overtime on the entire crew if the gaffer shows up on the shoot day and has to figure out where the power is and how he's, how, how he's going to run his cables for power and where they're going to put the lights and what's in the path of some because they're thinking they
0: can do it themselves but the reality is they don't have the expertise right to know if that place that looks good to them it looks good to the average person oh yeah we'll film on that cliff right but to 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 your eyes to the gaffer's eyes you're gonna see things that of course they can't because they just don't have the expertise plus
1: plus the issue of safety Mm -hmm. Um, pre-production planning has a lot to do with safety and if you're on a cliff or you're in a factory you don't want to be too close to the cliff if someone's going to be, you know, sometimes a producer will say, we'll have them run right up to the edge of the cliff and then stop. Oh. Well, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, someone can yeah. get hurt. And one thing I said to my students over and over for years was no film, no shot, no sequence, no movie is ever worth an injury to anyone, and even people you don't like. Even people you don't like. Especially people Especially you don't, people don't like. Especially people you don't and like. And so yeah. safety, you know, planning is, is the only way to ensure, ensure safety. Okay. All right. So, I actually, I actually yeah. there was a, a very tragic episode on a tragic accident on a set where a train hit a young woman who was a camera assistant really? a few years ago. and um, That you were uh, one of your sets? No, no, one not, of your, not no. one of my sets. Yeah. A, uh, and I, I stopped saying that quote at, uh, at that time because too sensitive It's too sensitive too yeah. recent I actually really just realized that yeah yeah
0: yeah so okay so now we've got our team we've scouted our location yeah. we're all ready to go so let's talk about uh, a little bit more of the about specifically about the art of filming itself mm-hmm. and some of the components some of the elements that relate more to the creative side of things so you talked a little bit about lighting but mm-hmm. i just feel like that is so important um And it feels as if it's an art in and uh, and unto itself. And and one of my questions was going to be whether you did that or not. Now I know that the gaffer is, in fact, responsible for that. Um, But what are just some other things? I think a lot of people, sadly and ironically, have a more appreciation for lighting now that they're always taking selfies all the time. And I think people have learned (laughs) a little bit firsthand how important that is, right? Because you can be, just depending on... Uh, I mean, I don't really take selfies, but I know enough from just taking other kinds of photos that depending on just the angle, I mean, mm-hmm. it can just make or break a photo and it can not only make or break a photo, but it can create a very different photo. Right. And so tell us a little bit more just about kind of, you know, a quick crash course in lighting because I know that it is so important.
1: Well, the, the most important, the, the, the dominant light in the set is called the key light and the key light has to be set in such a way if you're, if you're dealing with faces, has to be set in general in such a way that that um, the eyes are illuminated. Okay. Um, now, there are many variations on that. There are definitely times when you don't want the eyes to be illuminated in order in order to create a, a, a different kind of a look. But find, finding the angle for the key light, whether it's around in, in front of the person, you generally don't want it directly in front of the person. You want it a bit to the side or sometimes a lot to the side. The more you go away from directly in front, the, the moodier the shot gets. Okay. And, of course, there's never just just one light um, for me a lot of the experience of lighting and a lot of the experience of, of working in the business and something that I miss since I retired is collaboration mm-hmm. um, I, I like creating the look with the director I like a director who comes in and says let's 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 have it moody let's have warm Sun coming in through the windows and but the interior is kind of blue and maybe there's some Maybe there's a red warning light that flashes on and off. I mean, I love that. I'd rather have that than a director who comes in and says, oh, I don't know, just make it pretty. Mm. And on the lighting side, I always loved collaborating with gaffers who were in charge of the whole lighting crew um, to the point of translating what the director has said. You know, let's have warm light coming through the windows. And then the director, the the gaffer, ideally, is going to say, well, I could use this light. I could use a 12K HMI outside, and we could put half CTO gel you on it. Give me options. Give me options. Whereas sometimes the gaffer will say, what light do you want to use for that? And I'd rather have them make suggestions and, work, collaboration and work off again, of, each, right. of each other. And that's, for me, that, that, that's the whole fun of, of, of filmmaking is, is collaborating. There are a lot of people who, who don't go along with that. There are a lot of people who say, just tell me. just, yeah, gaffers or crew people will say, just tell me, or, and camera people and directors who will just say, I don't want to hear from anybody. This is what I want, Mm, you know, I'm, you know, and that's not my favorite kind of person.
0: No, because it probably, I mean, that's one of the big things I learned about writing, Mm -hmm. right, is, you know, for the longest time I was writing my novel on my own thinking, you know, the nice thing about writing is it's just a a one person show, you know, Mm -hmm. and then of course, when it came time to get it out into the world, I was really surprised that, oh, well, I need beta readers, I need feedback from other people, I need an editor, I need a proofreader, I need people to help me with marketing. And the reason I bring that up in this context is because I was surprised to find that I enjoyed those collaborations and how much I benefited from those collaborations, particularly given that I had always kind of thought of writing as a Mm one-person thing. And I I really learned a lot about about the importance of collaboration and how much you benefit from collaboration. If you can, you gotta put your ego aside and you've gotta realize that, oh, wait, Bill might really have a thought here or some perspective that Bill I really, might have a thought. Right? Bill might have a thought. I hope he's got at least a half an hour more of thoughts. And, um, but yeah, that was a really surprising thing for me. And of course, less surprising for you because you're on a team of, I don't know how many people would be on a, on a typical team. Actually. That's another, uh, the like 10 people, crew, 20 people. Some
1: people would actually, or some camera people who would work completely by themselves doing their own audio and lighting on very small projects. Uh huh. I never worked with a crew smaller than two, me and and a sound recordist, or sound and video uh, technician. Um, Some of the bigger crews I was on were probably 30, 40 people. Okay. Perfect segue, because my next question was, that's lighting, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure, again, we could
0: talk for weeks probably Mm -hmm. about lighting, because that is such an art, but what about sound? Where does that, um, what can you say just regards, because that's another obviously huge component. Sound is...
1: uh, the the person who taught me uh, film production in film school was a, a wonderful man named Ron Alexander, who had been a, a, a studio mixer, sa- studio sound mixer at the national film board of Canada for many years. And he'd won a lot of awards and he was an iconic figure even before he started teaching at Stanford. Um, and he, he knew the rudiments of cinematography and lighting, but not a whole lot beyond that. But he really br- gave us an appreciation for sound. Now, a lot of times sound and camera are considered enemies or sound and lighting are considered enemies. Really? Lighting because, because you stick that boom mic into the shot and it'll cast a shadow. It oh, will cast yeah, a shadow. Yeah, yeah. And what you have to do is to make sure that, that the shadow doesn't fall anywhere where you can see it. Interesting. But it, yeah. it will cast a shadow. I, um, if the lighting people saw this, the sound guy would say, can you move that light a little bit? And this, and very often the lighting people will go, no, don't use, don't use a mic on a pole, use a radio mic, which is buried in someone's clothing. Okay. And that was, and, and never really sounds as good. And you have to deal with clothes, rustle, and it doesn't sound uh, directional mics sound better than the omnidirectional mics that are, that are, I in see. The, in the, that they pin on you. Uh, so they were kind of nat- natural enemies. What, what you have to find once you. Uh, have determined that the that the placement of the boom the the boom mic is is not going to cast a shadow on the subject or anywhere noticeable in the background is that you have to find a point where the sound person can lower the mic right to the top of the shot but not in the shot Mm. and the cinematographer either me or if i had a camera operator most almost all the time i operated the camera myself but we'd have to you know the, the the boom boom operator the would say can you give me a line meaning I'm going to bring the boom in and you tell me when it's in the shot okay. and the best boom operators can then find that position in space and, and go back to it every time um, Interesting. Uh, and I was always cooperative with that and I had I have to say numerous sound people saying you're so nice for a cinematographer, <laughs> Mo- you know, Interesting. meaning most of them are right. Not assholes, so accommodating, not and, so accommodating. Yeah, or just assholes. A very yeah. common, very common expression is get your fucking mic out of my fucking shot. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So uh, it gets a little heated. It can get heated and I was never that way. And so, I mean, they appreciated that. what Ron Alexander taught us was it really doesn't work as a silent picture, right? <laughs> make, make the sound. That was a long time ago. Make the sound work.
0: Back then when we didn't have sound, it was okay. But now that we've got it, let's right. make the most of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: There is a lot of content and emotional value in audio.
0: So speaking of emotion, speaking of dealing with people, mm-hmm. that seems like that's another big element here mm-hmm. is how you interact with your subjects. And mm-hmm. sometimes if you were doing things for the corporate world, they might not be actors or maybe they are actors, but they're just for that gig. Right. Um, so you've got to get people to relax, open up. I would assume, again, if they're not actors, do what you want and, and what you need them to do. So it seems like that's another attribute that you would want as a director, photography, cinematographer to have the people skills, again, to kind of get people to do what you want them to do. What part, t- tell us a little bit about kind of how that came into play.
1: Well, a lot of that is the director's purview. Uh, direct, directing non-professionals is is, is a, an art in itself, making people um, comfortable, making them bringing out their best, um, uh, showing their best side. I mean, literally in terms of the photography and figuratively in terms of getting their content out is, is, is very difficult. I worked, uh, the director I worked with most over the years, Randy Field was really wonderful at doing this, um, and, and in many other things. And he's a terrific bowler also. Yes. Um,
0: and that I believe is where the title, well, wait, was he in that story? He was in that He story, is in that yeah, story. Yeah. Yes. So um, the title of the book... Showdown at Shinagawa, in case we haven't mentioned that. Right. Showdown at is, Shinagawa. Shinagawa is, is a bowling story. They're in Tokyo, or Japan Tokyo, at least. In yeah, in Tokyo uh, bowling. So Randy was bowling. Well, no, Randy's not bowling. In well, the I was going to tell you you about, his, <laughs> about his skill with non yeah. Yes.
1: And, and um, one time, at least one time, when I was working on the set with the crew, setting up the lights and getting the audio and getting the dolly because the camera was on a moving dolly and getting everything set, I went to the back to get Randy um to to get him to approve everything and 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 he looked at me and said yes and i said i said your majesty everything awaits you while you've been just you know messing around back here I've been working hard out front right. we had a very sardonic relationship and, st- yes. and still do and he looked at me and he says I'm not messing around I'm warming up the talent right and he w- he was sitting there telling jokes and and the very nervous ex- executive who'd walked in half an hour later was now relaxed had his collar unbuttoned and and was starting to chat and warming people up like that is is a real art and and something that makes everybody's job easier because you have to especially if it's a corporate thing and I did a ton of that stuff they're the boss they're mm-hmm. they're sometimes the guy on camera or the woman on camera is actually the client Right. that's not always the best way to go but but um uh th- they need setup time as well
0: right right and if you can get them to laugh once right, or twice right. then it's like the whole mood changes yeah. so randy said something that i loved um That's uh, Wait, what did you say? No, you said this, but this is something you shared with Randy, rather. And the quote here is, we both hated lazy creativity and refused to make the same film over and over again for different clients. So is it easy to fall into that temptation? And why did you refuse
1: not to fall into that temptation? It's easy with corporate stuff to think, oh, I can use the same creative, where they use creative as a noun. Uh, Creative can be a noun, meaning all the creative in uh ideas that you've had, it creative can be a noun referring to creative people which i can't stand it makes my skin crawl <laughs> think, think that way but uh-huh. but it's it's easy to, to think okay well the last guy was selling microchips and we put him in a in, in kind of a tunnel with a vortex of of uh of color behind him twirling and twirling and this guy is a completely different co- company it's a different product they're not in the same area let's put him in a in a tunnel with a vortex they'll never swirling know. color they'll never know yeah and yet that's what i call lazy creativity that's t- using the same crap over and over again and randy the second time i worked with randy i was impressed because th- there were very similar uh, uh, products Philosophy and clients answer. and philosophies oh, oh. but he he didn't want to do it the same way. He wanted to do something different. He said, what's the point? What's the point of doing the same thing? Over well, and doesn't
0: that keep you interested in your job? Absolutely. And isn't that hopefully why you're doing it is because you like right. the creative aspects right. of it? Right, right.
1: Absolutely. Know. We, we did a... a, a and he, he would also let me stretch, um, stretch my creativity, stretch the truth sometimes. We had a, a... I can't remember what the product was, but it was some Silicon Valley company. And we had a, an actor walking down a hallway... And as he walked down the hallway, the moonlight came in from the right. And then he took another few steps and the moonlight came in from the left. And the third time Randy saw the run through, he said, wait a minute. Is this a world with two moons? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said, no, this is our world. But maybe it's a reflection or maybe there are two moons and, and nobody's going to notice. And nobody ever called us on it. Oh, that's funny. So,
0: so but you did that on purpose or it just happened because of the way the lights happened to be?
1: The... You could say it just happened. I mean, I had a corridor with light with with windows on two sides, so I was obviously going to bring light through them. Okay. And I I decided to make them both moonlight. And you let it happen, yeah. I let it happen. Yeah.
0: Okay, I would love to talk more about all of that side of things, but I want to get to some of your specific adventures and some of the specific observations in your book. Sure. Now, one common theme that comes up... um, just anyone who's traveling to places that are even slightly off the beaten path. One thing that people think about and you get asked about, I suspect, and I know I get asked about is safety. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, uh, one of the stories that I liked in, uh, that's related to this that stood out in your book is when you were, uh, you're in India and you're on the Bombay Pune road Mm -hmm. and quote, I had heard of this stretch of highway long before coming to India. From 1996 to 2000, the Indian government estimated an average of over 4,100 accidents per year on mm-hmm. this 170-kilometer stretch, mm-hmm. 3,300 of them head-on. And you end up in an accident on that stretch. Yep. I think it was on that stretch, yep. right? Right. Yep. So can you just give us a quick overview of, of what happened?
1: Well, the context of the story, the story is called Wrecks and Pissers. And, um, we arrived in India, jet lagged and tired and, and we were in Bombay for a couple of days and we did some work there. Then we had to go to Pune, uh, which is about a hundred miles away, but they had allowed four hours for us to drive there. And I was thinking, why would it take four hours? Well, it took four hours cause it was windy mountain road and it was two lanes and you could get stuck behind, behind, uh, almost any kind of slow moving vehicle. Right. Um, there were about 10 of us traveling, including our Indian crew and the producer, uh, our wonderful fixer in India, Sushil Bhatnagar, had hired a 60-seater bus. I mean, a huge tourist bus. And I couldn't figure out why until we started the trip and I realized that we had tremendous stability in the bus. uh, And part of the the windy two-lane road was being replaced by a a six-lane expressway. But the transitions from the road to the expressway were often over... Long patches of gravel or bumpy, rutted uh, fields that hadn't really been figured out yet. Yeah, um, and we noticed that on the um, on the side of the road there were a lot, lots of wrecked cars. The statistics you quoted, I I, fig- I found out later when I started writing the story. But we saw lots of wrecked cars. Some of the some of which looked like they'd been there for decades, and some of which looked like they could have just happened. And one time we saw people taking uh, what appeared to be a dead body out of, oh, really? out of, out of a car. And, oh, wow. And uh, we, on, on the way back a, a week later from Pune to, to uh, Mumbai, Bombay, uh, we, we were feeling very cynical and we decided to, to um, count the number of wrecked cars. And, and Randy was wondering whether the number of wrecks would be greater than the number of people we saw urinating at the side of the road. And so we, um, we decided to make it a, a game, and we called it Rex and Pissers. And we were counting Rex, and then we were call- counting Pissers, and um, it started to rain. It, things, things went on for quite a while and you ended up becoming one of the wrecks. Well, we, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So how much is potential danger taken into consideration before you go on something like that overseas, if at all, or do you just kind of hope? I don't for the have best? any,
1: I'm not an adventurer. I, yeah. I don't have any desire to go anywhere dangerous or do anything yeah. dangerous. I'm not a daredevil. I don't, I don't do climbing and that kind of stuff. And there were, there were certain things that I wouldn't do when I, when I was working. Yeah. Uh, but, but Safety is always a concern. I mean, we were, Sushil put us in that bus because he thought that would be the safest thing for us. Basically a big tank, a big B- fast big, moving tank. Big fa- a big whale. Yeah. Um, when I was shooting in, in, uh, uh, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in the outlying areas, everything was fine. But when we went downtown, we had an armed guard with us. Mm-hmm. Always. Right. Um, a, a guy packing heat. Yeah, just um, in case. And sometimes two. Yeah. Oh, really? Because there were often often robberies of, of film crews there, as, as sometimes happens in the Bay Area. Now. Right. Sure. Um, so safety is always important.
0: So a funnier experience that I loved in your book mm-hmm. uh, also takes place in India, and it's about personal space. Mm-hmm. And do you recall, I know I'm putting you on the spot, can you tell us about, there was your co-worker John's relationship with, his pr- pr- with the production assistant, LC? Oh, yeah. Can you can you just tell us what happened? <laughs> How well, their morning, they're basically their morning interaction. Right, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> um, th- there was a guy on the. I mean, he was kind of the lowest man on the totem pole in, in, among our Indian crew, and his job was was bringing drinks and and satisfying the needs of uh, in, in a very mundane way of uh, people on the crew. Uh, he would he he would serve us bring us a case of beer every morning at 8 a.m. and nobody wanted beer until after we were wrapped that night. But it turned out the last crew he had worked with was. Was German, uh, and he they wanted beer at 8 a.m. Oh, that's okay. uh, so. So we, he was also very much, very much in, in our faces, uh, in in terms of trying to get us to to accept a drink or a snack or or whatever. And so we, we called him L.C., which was short for Loose Cannon. Uh, uh-huh. um, part of his job, John was the, the video and audio technician, and he had all of his gear set up on a, a rolling cart. And he kept it in his room every night. And part of L.C. 's job was to meet John every morning at 8.30 uh, and, and help him wheel the cart down to the lobby, which was not anything John really needed help with, but it was part of his job. Sure. And even though it was, it was set every morning for 8.30, Elsie would often show up at quarter to eight and start <laughs> pulling the cart. And John would pull the cart back and pulling the cart. And then John would make it really clear that he didn't want to go yet. And, and he'd be standing there in his towel, shaving and brushing his teeth while Elsie's standing. <laughs> w- w- well, let's just say within a Texan's uh personal space. Yeah. Uh staring and, and you know, not in any nefarious way, but just 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 no the the w- way too close for yeah, comfort. The quote
0: is so I'm standing there in my towel, John said. John said. Just right. a little self conscious as I'm brushing my teeth and LC's standing about two feet away inspecting my toilet kit. Right. I just love that. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. But you like bathroom stories. But I love bathroom stories, right. yeah. And um and I was going to ask you about your own, what did you call it? Squatter straddling. You had a term straddle for that. Straddle crapper. Straddle crapper. But we're not going to talk about that because I want to make sure we get a few other things in. Okay. And one thing that comes up a few times, and we do have to just kind of highlight this, but the fact that you're 6'4", mm-hmm. and you're often traveling in places where the people historically have been shorter. Right. They might not be anymore, which was really interesting. I mm-hmm. loved what you were talking about, how that's changing. Um, in Japan. In Japan. But can you tell us just a couple of questions, a couple of, and let me prompt you here since we're kind of, um, but... In Singapore, there was the bunny suit issue, which we're not going to talk about, but that's a great story in the book. They end up; they don't have a bunny suit big enough for uh, Bill to work. It was at a microchip plant. Yeah, the they, bun, yeah.
1: bunny suit meaning the protective covering coveralls.
0: Yeah, sorry, right? not actual, right. <laughs> not actual. I was like Easter, a bunny, right? Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you were you you told someone you they were wondering if you were a celebrity basketball player in Manila.
1: Right. There were two two. Um, uh, two um bellboys who were dragging my they, they were about 18 inches shorter than i was and they were uh-huh. dragging my suitcase to my room and they said are you a famous american basketball player and i said yes i'm magic johnson
0: okay but did they believe you they didn't believe no, you okay no, all right all right no. okay. i hope they didn't <laughs> all right because you never know you know what they're i think basketball is pretty pretty famous around yeah. the world though so yeah. they probably actually more, know who more magic now johnson. but even yeah. then yeah yeah um So what about... And then you had trouble getting a massage, which I thought was hilarious in Japan.
1: Just too darn big.
0: Yeah, because you were too big. And what did they say to you? They just said... Too big,
1: too big. (laughs) Well, Randy was getting a massage in his room right nearby. And he's about six feet and I'm about four inches taller. And he said that his his lady came in and looked at him and said, too big, too big. And he said, well, you should see my buddy next door. Yeah. But she yeah. didn't.
0: And and your masseuse or your massage therapist or whatever actually did give you a massage? Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. So la- Randy's the only one who had the problem there. She didn't there. flip out, right.
1: All right. But I do have a history of bumping my head.
0: Yes. And uh, one of the things that is also great about uh, Bill's book and his website, because I, I haven't mentioned yet, I was going to later, but A lot of these stories that Bill is sharing and that are in the book, he has the videos that he talks about making. So you can actually go see, you can read one of his stories, for example, with regards to bathrooms. This isn't a professional video he made, but he talks about this really small bathroom that he stayed in in Japan. And that he could barely fit in, being 6'4", and they made a video. And so you can actually go see the video that he's telling you about in the story on his website. And some of the professional videos that he talks about um, when he's on these shoots, you can go see them on his website, which is Show, really cool. Showdown at Shinagawa.com. .com. So, um... Speaking of one of those videos, let's do a little bit of name dropping here, okay? because um, you have worked with some very famous people, yeah. and one of those videos that I just mentioned that people can see the beginning of is you uh, film Steve Jobs yep. giving the introduction, presenting the very first uh, iStore, wait, what's it called? Apple Store. Apple Store. Right. Yeah, so what, what was that like? It sounds as if he lived up to his reputation.
1: He had a had a reputation for being difficult to work with, and I'd been around him a little bit before. I'd been on a number of shoots at Apple, well, a number of shoots where he didn't show up, where we would set up, sit around all day. And Steve, who was uh, at the time running both Pixar and Apple, just decided that he didn't have time. Could make it. Yeah. Um, we still got paid. We wrapped, go home, come back Tuesday. It happened again. That kind of stuff. Uh, several times I was on things where, where. Um, he was supposed to arrive and did, but I and the entire crew, except for the director, were behind drapes or these black flags that we use to obscure things on on a film set. Um, and people were told, "Don't talk to him. Don't make eye contact." Which is so uh, weird. The it, eye
0: it, contact part just seems really weird uh, to I,
1: me. I've heard that with other other kind celebrities. of celebrities before that they just that they're. I mean, especially people who are innately shy but brilliant. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Steve Jobs was innately shy, but he was certainly. Um, certainly brilliant but um the apple store thing happened i i had to deal with him very directly i had a, a director uh who was very much involved um but um the idea of the of the of the shot we were supposed to do was to walk in uh there was we were at the very first apple store in the suburbs of washington dc there was a black plywood wall it hadn't opened yet and a door in it and we were going to film steve Sticking his head out through the door with a, with a smile and saying, "Come on in. You want to come see our store?" And then I was going to go in there uh, with a handheld camera and follow him around. And his idea was that we would do it all in one take. We would do one twenty minute tour without ever stopping, stopping and breaking the camera. And um, uh, the very first thing he pointed over to one segment, and I stayed on him. I didn't point pan over to where he was pointing. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you're supposed to follow my point. I thought, great, we're one minute into the shoot. I've already pissed him off. You
0: didn't realize he was the director.
1: Uh, There was a director who then, who after a long pause, it felt like about five minutes, it was probably eight seconds, came running out and said, oh, Steve, we talked about it. Right. But Steve won.
0: Right, so working with the celebrities and the the famous people can be challenging. I wanted you to tell your story about your interaction with Bill Clinton, yeah. but people are going to have to read the book for that. But okay. That is a great one. Thank you. And uh, there are lots of other celebrities in the book that are that, uh, that Bill worked with. But I want to talk, because we only have a few more minutes. We've only got about three more minutes. Oh, no. I want to talk about transition. I know it's really gone by very quickly. I want to talk about you've transitioned to writing. Mm-hmm. So why, why transition to writing?
1: I started, when I started... Um really traveling a lot for work in 92 93 um i started uh, writing letters home and this was still kind of pre-email so i would fax i would write out a page or two and fax it home to my wife and kids and they really liked getting it and a few years later when we got email i would email them and say this is where i am and it was still kind of too early for digital pictures, but this is what it's like. I'm in Singapore. There's a lot of the old city here, but there's all this new stuff. I'm in Japan. It's it's very Americanized, but it's still very Trying to a- very share Asian, what you're experiencing. Trying to share it, and I started sending uh, the same email to more family and some friends, and uh, eventually, a few years later, I just started compiling all this stuff and writing, writing stuff down in order to be able to, to share it. That was about 18 years ago, And that was the beginning of the material for for my book. For the book. All right. And now we've got a book.
0: The other thing, though, you've made another big step forward. In addition to the book, Showdown at Shinagawa, you have just started uh, storytelling. And you've got a one-man show that you're working on. And about to debut to the world, I believe.
1: April 20th in Berkeley at the Silk Road House, 1944 University Avenue. Um, I'm going to be doing an hour of storytelling on my own. Oral tradition. I'm not reading stories. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's kind of a verbal jazz. Every time I tell a story, it comes out a little bit, a little so bit So explain that a
0: little bit, this idea of storytelling. You're not, it's not a recitation. You're right. not reading. Cause a lot of times we'll go and we'll watch authors read from their books. Right. So just give us a quick, you know, 20 second overview of how storytelling is kind of different. Cause I think that's well, it's interesting.
1: Like, it's like if I said to you, Matthew, uh, how did you find the place where you live now? You know that story. You can right. tell it to me if, if someone else asked you a week from now, you'd tell it a little bit differently, but with the same elements right you know it's probably some of the same words um and and if you told it ten times, it would you could kind of perfect it as a performance piece if it were an interesting subject. I don't know where you live, but I assume it's assume it's interesting it was fascinating it was yeah. fascinating. fascinating and that's kind of and that's kind of what it's like. so it's not memorization. it's not a recitation, as you said. it's not reading. Um, but after the, my book came out, I started, uh, I had a couple of launch events and other places where I was asked to read my stories and I really loved it. And then I saw some storytellers perform and I thought I can do that. Yeah. Little realizing just how difficult it can be.
0: Well, I, if I weren't on going to be on the real Silk Road, you know that I was, mm-hmm. I would love to, to be there, but let me just throw it's out a great the, excuse uh, though. yeah, it is a great excuse and it's a legitimate one, I've, but I, I will definitely try to catch your next, uh, the next time you perform, you. but let me. Throw out here uh the the date again is April 20th, 2018, uh 7 to 830 at the Silk Road House, 1944 University Avenue. That is just a six month mu- six minute walk from downtown Berkeley Bart Station. The email, or not the email, but rather the website is billzarchi.com and you can see that on my website. And the book website is showdown at Not
1: shitagawa Not shitagawa.
0: Not shitagawa Don't be who said that? Uh, did Larry say that when he that introduced you? Don did. Yeah. Oh, Don did that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have so many more things I would like to ask you about. I think you're going to have to be on again. Okay. We're just going to have to figure that out when now? I come back. Yeah. Can't do it now. Jesper is waiting. Okay. But uh, thanks for being on today. This was great. Thank you, Matthew. Check out Enjoy his book, it. check out his one man show.